the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to Vatican Insider. This week, be sure to tune in to the interview segment for part two of my conversation with Father David Nazar, Rector of the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. You will learn about the Institute, where the students come from, the graduate courses and degrees it offers, its celebrated library, and its many unique aspects, including the fact it hosts the only Catholic faculty of Oriental Canon Law in the world. So don't miss that after the news and the Q&A. Now, the highlights of the week just passed. Sunday, January 16th, at the Angelus, the Pope reflected on the day's gospel story of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus transformed water into wine. The first sign Jesus accomplished, he said, did not consist of an extraordinary healing, but a simple and concrete response to a human need. This is how God loves to act. And if we, like Mary at Cana, ask him, Jesus is ready to help us, to lift us up. And then, if we are attentive to these signs, we will be conquered by his love, and we will become his disciples. After the Marian prayer, the Holy Father offered prayers for those affected by heavy rains and severe flooding in various regions of Brazil in recent weeks. He also invited everyone to participate through prayer in the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity from January 18th to the 25th. Monday, January 17th. Pope Francis welcomed journalists of the Holy Land Review, a publication of the Franciscan Custody of the Holy Land that is celebrating its 100th anniversary. He said the mission of telling the story of the Holy Land means sharing the fifth gospel, that is to say, the historical and geographical environment in which the Word of God was revealed and took on flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, for us and for our salvation. It also means telling the story of those who live there now, he said, including Christians of various churches and denominations, as well as Jews and Muslims. Your overall goal should be to help build a fraternal society in the difficult and complex social context of the Middle East. Also Monday, Pope Francis welcomed an ecumenical delegation from Finland on the eve of the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. He said, Christians today are challenged to take our brothers and sisters by the hand and move forward together. In this journey together, some stages are easier, allowing us to advance rapidly with perseverance, while the journey towards full unity is sometimes more difficult. He called for courage and patience along the way in order to encourage and support one another. Tuesday, January 18th. The Vatican announced that through the Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development, Pope Francis has made a donation of 100,000 euro to the Philippines for aid after disaster struck with the Typhoon Rai. He also sent 100,000 euro to aid migrants blocked between Belarus and Poland. Wednesday, January 19th, at the general audience, Pope Francis continued his catechesis on St. Joseph highlighting his example of fatherly love and tenderness and its importance in the life of Jesus. In the Gospels, he said, significantly, Jesus always appeals to the image of an earthly father when speaking of his heavenly father and his love. As a loving father, God helps us to see the truth about ourselves. 
in order to make us grow to spiritual maturity in Christ. That's why it's so important to encounter his merciful love in the sacraments, particularly the sacrament of reconciliation. After the catechesis, the Pope said his thoughts go to the people of the islands of Tonga, who have been affected in recent days by the eruption of the underwater volcano, which has caused enormous material damage. I'm spiritually close to all the afflicted people, and I implore God for relief for their suffering. I invite everyone to join me in praying for these brothers and sisters of ours. Thursday, January 20th. Pope Francis received in audience Cardinal Marcello Semeraro, Prefect of the Vatican Congregation for the Causes of Saints, and he authorized him to promulgate three causes of servants of God and to confer the title of Doctor of the Universal Church on St. Irenaeus. Also Thursday, Pope Francis addressed Italy's National Association of Building Contractors on its 75th anniversary, and he spoke of the importance of their work, highlighting the necessity of ensuring safe working conditions for all. He discussed the values of competition and transparency, and responsibility and sustainability, and he highlighted ethics, legality, and safety. He noted that last year too many people died at work. They are not numbers, said Francis, but real people. If we look at safety in the workplace as a cost, we're starting from the wrong assumption. Working safely allows everyone to express the best of themselves while earning their daily bread. And he added that the more we take care of the dignity of work, the more certain we are that the quality and beauty of the work carried out will increase. Friday, January 21st. Pope Francis addressed members of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith as they meet in plenary assembly. He renewed his gratitude for their valuable service to the Universal Church in promoting and safeguarding the integrity of Catholic doctrine on faith and morals. He also offered a reflection focused on three words, dignity, discernment, and faith. The Holy Father had special off-the-cuff words for discernment, here I would like to focus on the need for discernment in the synodal process. Some may think that the synodal path is to listen to everyone, make an inquiry, and give results. Many votes, many votes, many votes, he said. No. A synodal path without discernment is not a synodal path. It's necessary in the synod process to continually discern options, points of view, reflections, one cannot go on to the synodal path without discerning. This discernment is what will make the synod a true synod, of which the most important person, let's say this, is the Holy Spirit, and not a parliament or an inquiry of opinions that the media can use. For this, I stress, discernment in the synodal process is important. Also Friday, the Pope received a group of bishops from Spain on their ad limina visit. And again, Friday, the Vatican issued Pope Francis's decree for the conferral of the title of Doctor of the Church on St. Irenaeus of Lyon. St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who came from the East, exercised his Episcopal ministry in the West. He was a spiritual and theological bridge between Eastern Christians and Westerners. His name, Irenaeus, expresses that peace that comes from the Lord, and that reconciles reintegrating into unity. For these reasons, after having received the opinion of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints, 
With my apostolic authority, I declare him a doctor of the church with the title of Doctor Unitatis. May the doctrine of such a great master encourage more and more the path of all the Lord's disciples towards full communion. Well, those are the week's news highlights, but now stay here for the Q&A and then my talk with Father David Nazar, rector of the Pontifical Oriental Institute. Welcome to this week's Q&A. It concerns doctors of the Church. As of January 21, 2022, when Pope Francis conferred the title Doctor of the Church, Doctor Unitatis, Doctor of Unity, on St. Irenaeus, the Catholic Church has 37 doctors of the Church. Irenaeus joins 36 celebrated confrères and consorts, including four women, St. Hildegard of Bingen, Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, and Therese of Lisieux. There are also four greats among the 37 doctors of the Church, Saints Albert the Great, Basil the Great, Gregory the Great, and Leo the Great. Doctor is from the Latin word docere, to teach. In fact, another word might be teacher. We know who the doctors are, but what is a doctor of the Church? Our Sunday Visitors Encyclopedia of Saint explains it this way. The doctors of the Church are certain men and women who are revered by the Church for the special value of their writings and preaching, the depth of their doctrinal insight, and the sanctity of their lives, their preeminent sanctity even among saints. They each made important and lasting contributions to the faith and are to be recognized for their great merits. Initially, the doctors were considered the Church Fathers, Augustine, Ambrose, both from the 4th century, Jerome of the 5th century, and Gregory the Great of the 7th century. But the Church added others through the centuries. The first woman doctor of the Church was St. Teresa of Avila, named by St. Paul VI in 1970, and followed later that year by Catherine of Siena. By the way, the new doctor, St. Irenaeus, his feast day is June 28th. This is Bernadette Pogusky, Executive Director of WCCR Cleveland, AM 1260 The Rock. Why do we need Catholic Radio? To reach the hearts, minds, and souls of those who are searching for deeper meaning and don't know where to turn. To bring clarity to a world full of lies and confusion. And to share the good news of joy and mercy with a world so desperate for the truth. The world needs EWTN Catholic Radio. Now more than ever. Wherever you are in the world, you can access the EWTN Global Catholic Network. It's everywhere. You can get EWTN's great Catholic programming on your car radio, at home on your TV, computer, or smart speaker. With EWTN's app, you can take EWTN everywhere on your phone or mobile device. If you want your news in print, turn to EWTN's paper of record, the National Catholic Register. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. I think we've made prayer very complicated. You know, nobody has to tell you how to talk to a friend or a neighbor or to somebody in the streetcar. You pass somebody in a, in a restaurant. It comes spontaneous. It's natural. Well, that's how prayer is. It's spontaneous. Sometimes. You just kind of speak from your heart. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. 
Here's Joan Lewis. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Father David Nazar, rector of the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. Last week, we heard how, as a Canadian Jesuit born to a family of Ukrainian origin, his multilingual, multicultural background, after years as a superior of Jesuits in Ukraine and former provincial of the Jesuits in the English Canada province, how all this led him to Rome. This week, you will learn more about the Institute, the Orientale, as it's called in Rome, the graduate courses and degrees it offers, its many unique aspects, including the fact it hosts the only Catholic faculty of Oriental canon law in the world. One truly fascinating aspect is how many of the students, especially women, coming from war-torn areas of the world to study their religious heritage, intend their studies to help them rebuild their countries. In reading about your library, in fact, I think, um, didn't you just get some big coverage in, was it the New York Times, did a fascinating article on, on your library and on the history of and the number of volumes, and they cover ecclesiastical history, theology, patristics, spirituality, liturgy, Eastern canon law, and, and Eastern Christian art. Oh, and you also have the only faculty of... Um, of Oriental Canon Law in? Yeah, the Oriental Canon Law was really um, gathered and developed and published here at the Orientale. And, uh, and it's the only f- full faculty in the world. We're helping to develop two faculties in India at the moment. But it's the only full faculty in the world where you can get a doctorate. Uh, it's the only faculty where you can get a doctorate in Oriental Canon Law. That's, that's true. And again, that's, that's significant because you're drawing on the tradition. So what is law based on? Law is based on human practice, the expression of the faith, distinguishing this, what belongs and what doesn't belong to it. So you're getting into history. Uh, in the Eastern churches, you're often getting into the roles of emperors who were parts of sure. or sometimes interfering with, sometimes helping to resolve conflicts among churches and all. So it, it's vi- there are very interesting studies you can do just on the basis of, of canon law. Well, you know, and to think of it, I probably should have, or we should have mentioned this earlier. I mean, uh, at the Vatican, there is a congregation for Oriental churches, so it's it's very, very uh, specific. You can't not recognize the churches um, uh, of the East. Now, the countries, of course, you mentioned so many of them, or, or probably all of them, so many of the countries of the Oriental churches are... Uh, there are troubled areas of the world, which is so sad. Conflicts and, and probably more areas with Oriental churches than with, with Latin churches. So can just comment on sure, that? Sure, sure. And that's, again, our library and research and teaching possibilities have become more significant for that. Because when a country is in trouble, uh, it goes back to its roots to find out who we are. A typical example is the, uh, is the United States or France or, or Britain. In, in the States, for example, in these past years, it's uh, all these co- political conflicts. What did they do? They go back to the Founding Fathers. They go back to the Constitutions, the separation of powers. Why do we have this? There's some interference with the separation of powers. and So you go back to your founding documents. In the case of the Middle East, especially the areas of Syria and Iraq and Iran, the, the period of great flourishing is like the 12th, 13th centuries. And just as the Greeks might go back to, to Plato and, uh, and Aristotle, in the Middle East, to find out who they are, they go back to their original sources. Just to give you an example, 
authors in the uh, in 12th century Baghdad. Baghdad was the Paris of its time. It was an intellectual center, really? great ferment, great publishing. They translated Aristotle, all the Greek philosophers, into Arabic. And Arabic was this extraordinary language for philosophical distinction. And so you had uh, Arab scholars, Muslim scholars, Christian scholars, and Jewish scholars all speaking Arabic, studying these documents, and they're coming up with political theory. Now imagine this, the 12th century, and they, they among themselves agree that the religious leaders should not be political leaders, that the head of state must be distinct from the head of any religion. Now, you wouldn't get that impression today with all the conflicts with ISIS right. and all this Muslim uh, kind of destruction of, of Muslim theology going on today. But that would not be the impression in the world that we want to have a religious leader who is the political leader. So we have students here who are studying the documents, studying the manuscripts, finding this stuff in order to go back to their countries and say, this is who we are. These other ideologies, these are uh, self-serving inventions of modern times. This is truly who we are. And so if they're going to develop, uh, if these countries are going to develop their own philosophy or political theology or p uh, politics, I could say, political theory, it's going to be on the basis of their own genius as well as what they learn from the rest of the world. It would be wrong to think that they can just import French or American democracy into their sure. country. They can learn something from that, but it will be their own creation. So that makes a place like this all the more important. And we're having... People, and it's very interesting that we're having lay women, more lay women come from Syria, from uh, Baghdad, and from Egypt to come and study here. Uh, these are lay women dedicated to the rebuilding of their countries. Wow. So it's not just priests being sent by their bishops, it's a broader appeal that this, this place has. Now, what do a lot of the students who are not from these troubled countries and, and the, you know, the Chaldean right in Iraq or something, like take Father Berrios and at St. Patrick's Parish here in Rome, a Paulist priest who's studying here at the Institute, what do, priests, what do a lot of the students want to do with their degree when they go back home, other than rebuilding a country, like you said? Sure, especially in today's sort of... Uh multicultural world, globalized world, there never was a pure culture. Cultures were always influenced by their neighbors, and you can see that in, in the scriptures uh, and all that. But all the more so today, you, the number of English words in every language is kind of extraordinary, what the internet has done. And it's not a bad thing, but it is a real phenomenon. So one of the things that's done at a spiritual level is people look far beyond their own tradition for spiritual nourishment. So even within, say, the Catholic community, to see how... You, you'll notice now that uh, so many Latin churches have an icon in them. Different, yeah. different expressions of Eastern spirituality. Yes. Because somehow that communicates something. So what, what a lot of people want to do is to understand, well, what are the roots of this, and what does it come from, and what does the icon really represent, even to be able to go back and teach or to preach about these things in their home country. Another aspect is what I mentioned earlier, is the diaspora. So we have students here from the United States, from Canada, from throughout Italy, uh, Poland, uh, different parts of, of Europe, who are coming here as Americans to study, for example, the Ruthenian Church or the Ukrainian Church. Because they were born, say, in the United States, their culture is American, and their religious expression, while its roots might be Ukrainian or Ruthenian uh, Byzantine, it has to adapt to American culture. 
So how do you do that intelligently? You can't just say, this is our tradition and it can never change. It's already changed once it's arrived in the United sure. States. But how do you change intelligently? What do you draw from that tradition that speaks to the, the broader community? Uh, what can you change? What do you retain? How do you reformulate it? Which is what churches have done and countries have done since the beginning. But now with, with sort of a different... Uh, experience, a much broader experience of, of the broader world. And it's, it's also instructive even for politics. It's instructive for how can people get along. And again, we've lost so much of that, um, the notion that we are kind of one big human family. We're quite divided today. Mm. And the churches have a possibility of speaking to that division and creating a new sense of unity. Oh, absolutely. Now, Father, how many students are there currently here? So I have to divide this a little bit for you because there would be about 200 students in the degree programs. There are about 200 students that just come for languages. We teach about 12 languages here. Oh. And then there would be about 400 uh, scholars who come every year just for the use of the library. So the broadest number is 800. 800. But really for different kinds of study, it's about 400. And real degree programs, 200. Do you have any famous students? I know you're part of the Gregorian... Um, consortium, if you will, and I know popes and and cardinals are have emanated from these universities. Sure. The most famous uh, graduate uh, would be uh, Patriarch Bartholomew. Oh, so he's the number one uh, Orthodox patriarch in the world, based in Constantinople, sure. Istanbul. Sure, and he w- he was here for the early years of the founding of the Canon Law Faculty. A very close friend. Uh, oh, wonderful! Yeah, and there'd be many patriarchs, but you would have to know those those churches. But patriarchs uh, throughout the Middle East would have studied here. Certainly Bartholomew would be the most well-known simply because of the friendship that has been born between um, Pope Francis and, and Bartholomew. Sure. And, oh, speaking of Pope Francis, he's visited the Orientale, has he not? Yeah, for the 100th anniversary in 2017, that's, uh, he's very gracious from that point of view. If there's a major celebration, he'll come to the, the various pontifical institutes in Rome. And so, yeah, that was, that was a big thing. We had renovated a part of the building. Uh, student body was increasing. And obviously, to bring the Pope here is a special thing. So we had a lovely portrait. Not a portrait of his face, but a kind of an active portrait of him working with migrants. Uh, oh. He's with an Orthodox patriarch, and he's visiting Lesbos on an island. Oh, sure. And we had an, uh, an American artist make a, make a painting that was a composite of a bunch of photographs. So we unveiled that at the time of the papal, uh, papal wow. visit. Yeah. Now you said you're kind of working on go back to today, that is to say 2022, kind of working on maybe some projects to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Orientale being assigned to, to the Jesuits. So any, any plans or just you're talking it over with the faculty? <laughs> we're we're t- still talking it over right now because it, the, anniversary, the, the 100th anniversary of the Institute we are well aware of, and we're planning for that a year or two years in advance. The Jesuit anniversary, well, we're here to work, and we do our yeah. work, and yeah. it doesn't have the same prominence, uh, and even in our minds, as the opening of the Institute itself. But we, we don't have specific plans, but I can say that, that the uh, kind of in the background of that is to make the, the Orientale more accessible to a broader community. So we've initiated uh, this digitizing process of our library, because we know that a lot of people, especially as you mentioned from these troubled countries, 
they don't have the luxury, let alone the, the money, to come here and spend a year or five years doing uh, studies or a doctorate. So the more things we can put online, the sure. more things we can make available to people who can't afford to come in, their own resources to which they don't have access in their own country, that's a huge emphasis we have right now, and that's a collective effort by the, by the Jesuits. But we'll still have to see how, how we can best uh, celebrate a uh, hundred years of the Jesuits here while main- maintaining our famous modesty. Of course, <laughs> of course. Now, Father, in all that we've talked about, is there some question I should have asked and, and didn't? Maybe one that, that always stays with me, it's, uh, it's really this observation that when the popes, because the popes had discussed this for about 20 years before actually creating the Orientale, the first discussions were under Leo Thirteenth who was famous for social teaching. Exactly. And his secretary, one of his secretaries, became Benedict XV. And they saw that there was a need for higher education, which is always part of the Catholic charism, is education, education. And that there were so many small Eastern churches, Catholic and Orthodox, that did not have the resource to start a university. So it was a very prophetic gesture to say, Let's, this is in our bag of tricks. This is something we can do. Let's start a university in Rome for higher studies to research all of the riches of these Eastern traditions for the sake of the people in those traditions, but also so that the West will know of these, uh, these traditions. That was one prophetic aspect. And the other was, it was ecumenical before the word ecumenical was used. So the place was open for Orthodox and Catholic, basically priests, but anyone to come and study these resources here, to research them, to open them up, to analyze them. And so I never know what student is Catholic or Orthodox or whatever in this place, because it's always been that way. And we hardly ever use the word ecumenism or ecumenical, simply because we are. You are. What a beautiful, rich history and and story. And I want to thank you for taking time out because your schedule has to be so busy with all the language classes, with working on the library, with just doing so many things. Do you ever travel? Do you have to travel for... I do, I do. Obviously, in this period of COVID, it's been curtailed. But I would go to Lebanon. I would go to to Ukraine and different countries for different events. And we should actually do more of that because... The more we want to make our materials available, the more we have to speak to the local patriarchs, many of whom are our ex-students and all. But yeah, we want to really develop that. So ah. Once COVID allows, we'll be traveling more. Well, COVID has to allow us to do a lot more things, doesn't it? It, I it mean, does. It. Which, which is a good reason that you, you've come here, that we can make some of this information much more available on EWTN. The, the New York Times is very generous for doing something similar. Yeah, so. exactly. Well, I again want to thank you for your time, and I should have said halfway through this that uh, I've been talking with Father David Nazar, and I, I asked Father when we met how to pronounce his name. My language studies would have said Nazar, and he said that's correct, but he's generally known as Father Nazar, so rector of the Pontifical Oriental Institute, and again, thank you, Father David. Thank you very much. Until next time. Exactly. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.